thank you for allowing me the privilege to be here with you to worship the Lord. It's a sweet uh, grace uh, that ministers to my heart to hear the voices of people whom I have not met before singing to the same God who I worship just a couple kilometers down the road. It was such a good grace to be able to worship the Lord with you in song, and now I'm glad that we can worship the Lord together through God's word. Uh, recently, I was able to preach this same sermon at our church, and I preached the sermon on my birthday. Uh, this year marks a significant mile marker in age for me, and around that time, there were some other significant life events that were happening as well for my family. Birthday, uh, my second child, Timothy, was just born around that time. Uh, we closed on our first house, and uh, I'm actually pretty new at the senior pastor thing. I just started in January and after being in youth ministry for seven years, and preaching this sermon in this passage and thinking about these significant life events um, caused me to ask a question that you probably have asked before What type of legacy am I leaving? What will the memory of me tomorrow be based on the way that I live my life today? I read its book recently, international bestseller by author Mark Manson. The subtitle of the book is A Book About Hope. And in that supposed book about hope, he writes from a secular, non-Christian worldview in which he tries to build an argument from a secular, non-Christian worldview for how uh, people who don't believe in God can live their life with purpose and meaning amidst a world that seems to have ever-increasing worry and anxiety scattered through all parts of life. And he starts in the first chapter by arguing that from a secular non-Christian worldview, if you're going to have purpose and meaning and hope in this like life, you need to start from the uncomfortable truth of the inevitability of your own impending mortality. Great start to a book about hope, eh? But he starts there from his worldview because he has to because he does not believe that there's a God. But the reality is that so much of our world believes this and lives by it. And the reality is when they live by that, the only way that they can actually live a life that builds a lasting legacy is if they're motivated by fear. Because if I don't work as hard as I can now to get the highest degree of success that I can, then everything, every breath was meaningless. And I must, should have saved the oxygen for someone else. Psalm 112 gives us a different picture and a different motivation for how we can live today in a way that we can be remembered tomorrow. Psalm 112 gives us a unique motivation for leaving a lasting legacy and a picture of what that lasting legacy looks like. Psalm 112 is actually a sequel to Psalm 111. In Psalm 111, it's all about worshiping God for the works that he has done in redemption that will last forever, that will endure for eternity. Psalm 112 is then turning the attention from the works of God to the works of man and shows us that there is a way that we can live in which our work here on earth in this short hand's breadth span of life how in this short life, our work can be connected to God's work, and we can leave a lasting legacy. 
And here's the way it's connected, our work to God's work. The life that leaves a lasting legacy must be lived by the fear of God. This is what we must do if the conduct today is going to be remembered tomorrow in a way that glorifies God and improves good for others. So in my church, I like to invite uh, people to stand when we read God's word together to honor the Lord. Would you stand with me now to honor God in the reading of his word? Psalm 112. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He's distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away the desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a blessing that we have to be able to turn to your word. We can wait on you and hope in your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is a sword, living and active, that pierces to the secret places of our hearts to leave us open and bare before you. So God, I pray that both we would see you for who you are and we would allow you to see us for who we are and would our lives come in a conformity to you through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us to live a life that leaves a lasting legacy by the fear of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to learn five traits of that life that leaves a lasting legacy. But knowing that the life that leaves a lasting legacy must be lived in the fear of God, I think it's important that we first start at this theological basis. What is the fear of God? Now, at my church, we took a full week sermon learning about the fear of God before we went into Psalm 112. So I'll try as best as I can to condense a full sermon to about a couple minutes. But I've learned from my study of scripture and even observing my own life in the church itself, the fear of God is vitally important for Christian living, yet I believe that it has become fatally absent from much of life. And I wonder, are you living by the fear of God? So what is it? I want to give you a technical definition, then I want to give you a practical illustration. Here's the technical definition. The fear of God is a conscious awareness. The fear of God is a conscious awareness of God's own holiness and my own sinfulness. 
And when we have that conscious awareness of God's own holiness and my own sinfulness, it evokes within us initially a sense of terror. But that develops into a sense of ongoing reverence. The fear of God is a conscious awareness of God's own holiness and my own sinfulness that evokes an initial sense of terror which develops into an ongoing sense of reverence. Every time someone comes face to face with a living God, they fall flat on their face in terror before him. That's what happened to Isaiah in his vision in Isaiah 6. Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. That's what happened when King Josiah opened up the scriptures for the first time in generations and recognized that they were not keeping the law of Moses. And he tore his robes and said, great is the wrath of God upon us. That's what happened to Peter when he saw Jesus in the fishing boat. And he thought he was a simple teacher until Jesus told him to cast the net on the other side of the boat. And he pulled in a miraculous catch of fish. And he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. An awareness of God's holiness reveals my sinfulness and it evokes terror. But in the scripture, when you see people respond with this terror, you see then God respond with a word of grace. That lifts them up from frightening, incapacitating, debilitating terror and stands them to their feet in reverential awe so that they can walk before him in wisdom because he's forgiven them by his grace. That's what it is. What's it like? It's like surviving through a heart attack. Spiritually. Right? When you you have a heart attack, um, first thing you do is what do you do? You don't call 911. Chew the aspirin, then call 911, right? Have you not seen those commercials and heard the radio ads? Then when you're on the ground, you could die. The rest of the hospital, and if you survive through it, then you get the diagnosis with a doctor, and you might see, yeah, there were some family hereditary issues. But then he helps you see, look how your, your own choices, your own eating habits, your own sleeping habits, your own work habits, you cause this you can't look at anything the same way again initially incapacitating but then you have this respect for your lifestyle you can't man, this time you're passing by mcdonald's not going through the drive-thru you're not gonna stay up into 3 a.m and live on four hours of sleep and wait for the vacation in the summer anymore You're not going to schedule your work hours in the same way. You cannot look at the life the same way again. How could I do this when I know what it led me to? And it's the same thing when we see our sin in the light of God's holiness. I deserve God's wrath. But he showed me his mercy. How can I look at what I've loved in the same way? When God calls it sin, how can I look at relationships in the same way? How can I look at sexuality in the same way? How can I look at entertainment in the same way? How, I can't look at this in the same way. And that terror, by God's grace, turns to reverence. So that then you can walk in wisdom. So the fear of God enables you to live a life that leaves a lasting legacy. Because it puts you in orbit around his glory. 
There are a lot of things that are hard to control in our lives. Your kids, your finances, your, uh, your character, uh, evangelizing. There's so many things. You're ju- you can't juggle all these balls. But what you can do is allow all these to orbit around God's glory like, like planets over right around the sun. And in the fear of God, when you are held, turn your attention towards him and the weight of the mass of his glory can be held in orbit around him like the earth rotates around the sun and is nourished by its heat and light. Are you living by the fear of God? The fear of God is vitally important for Christian living, yet it has become fatally absent from all of life. We cannot live a life that leaves a lasting legacy unless we live by it. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So what does it look like then? If we live like in the fear of God, what does the lasting legacy look like? Well, there are five traits here. And here's the first one. A life that leaves a lasting legacy inspires others to worship. Verse 1 again. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Now, I want you to understand, generally, the proper way to preach a text is to go verse by verse. But in the Psalms here, I'm going to teach you every verse, but I'm going to teach it not verse by verse, but theme by theme. Because like in the epistles that Paul wrote, his ideas are organized lo- like logically, right? Uh, idea... Argument supporting, argument supporting, argument supporting, conclusion. Right? That's how Paul writes. But the, the poet in Psalm 112 doesn't write that way. He doesn't write first to teach you. He first writes to paint a verbal picture that shows the beauty of a life lived in the fear of God. So the passage isn't structured with logical ideas. It's structured by poetic artistic elements. And I want to teach you two interesting poetic elements in this passage that organize the themes of the verse uh, that we're going to consider. The first one is acrostic, right? You know in Psalm 111, or excuse me, Psalm 119, how each stanza, every line starts with the same letter of the next Hebrew alphabet? Did you guys know that happens in Psalm 119? It's kind of the same here. There are uh, how many? Twelve... I think 24 or so lines, every line here starts, the first letter of each line starts with the next sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The other interesting poetic element here is, I'm not going to tell you the technical term because it's meaningless, but the, uh, it, what it is, it, the, the poetic element is like this symmetrical repetition, where there are ideas that are put in symmetrical points of the poem and they all point to the middle point. Kind of like a good cheeseburger, right? You need bun and bun. I like my cheeseburgers plain with just cheese, FYI. Bun and bun, cheese and cheese, patty. Need the bun, need the cheese, patty is the star of the show. That idea of symmetrical parallel ideas happens here in this text. You can see the kind of sandwich idea in verse 3, verse 9, and verse 6. Look at the second half of verse 3. It says, his righteousness endures forever. 
And look at verse 9, mid, middle verse, middle line. His righteousness endures forever. And then verse 6, second line. He will be remembered forever. What was the word that was repeated there? Forever. This is about a lasting legacy. But the poet is less interested in just teaching you, here are the five points you need to do to leave a lasting legacy. And he's more interested in using art to show the divine beauty of a life lived in the fear of God. But the life lived in the fear of God itself isn't worth praising. Who is worth praising? It's the Lord. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. A life that leaves a lasting legacy inspires others to worship. When the psalmist thought about the life that people lived in the fear of God, that left a lasting legacy, he turned his attention towards God, and it inspired him to worship. That life is worth honoring, as the text says in verse 9. His horn is exalted in honor. Are you living that honorable life that when others see your conduct, they don't see you, they're inspired to worship God? I want to show you a picture of an inspirational life. This picture on the screen is called Saying Grace. It's a picture by... um, famous American artist Norman Rockwell. He's my favorite artist. Uh, most of his pictures are, aren't for sale. They're kept in a museum in like Connecticut or something. This is one of a few pictures that was ever been put to auction and it was sold in 2013 for 43 million dollars. I love this picture. When I first see this picture, I see the elderly lady kind of center right. And I see that she's not ashamed to live publicly in a way that fears God. And it's inspiring others to do the same, isn't it? The next thing I see is the little boy just to, beside her who's inspired to pray as she's praying. But you know what else I notice? There are three generations of men in this picture. Do you see that? Increasing even in height from the boy up to the young adults up to the elderly man. And the young adults in the middle seem like they're wayward. Right? They're smoking a bit, and I don't know if they should be at work right now or if it's the weekend, but they're confused about what grandma's doing, but also kind of intrigued, like, maybe I, maybe I, maybe I can do that too. But then notice the elderly man. He's seen this before. He really doesn't care. He's just a hardened soul, and he's walking away. And when I see this picture, it asks, makes me wonder, what type of man am I? Am I like a teachable child having that faith that Jesus says I, I should have? Am I like a wayward young man who, who's gone farther than he thought he would ever go, but who could, could maybe come back? Or am I just a hardened old soul that doesn't even care that it doesn't even care? What about you? The life that leaves a lasting legacy inspires others to worship. Our lives should be a canvas on which God paints his glory as we walk in the fear of him so that when other people see it, they see something honorable, they see something desirable in us, but they don't ultimately see us. They see the Lord and worship him. Are you living your life like that? Or are you still holding on to the brushes trying to paint your own picture of your own life for your own glory? 
What could God see if you handed the brushes over to him? What could others see? Well, they'll see the second trait for sure. The second trait of a life that leaves a lasting legacy is the life that leaves a lasting legacy stands with integrity. If you live by the fear of God, you're going to leave a lasting legacy inspiring others to worship and standing with integrity. Okay, let's jump through this passage and we'll see the theme of integrity shine forward. Verse 1. Hope you have your eyes in the scripture together with me. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Verse 3, second half of the verse. And his righteousness endures forever. Verse 4, second half. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved. Verse 9, middle. His righteousness endures forever. What was the verse that was repeated there, or word repeated there in those verses? It's okay to talk back. You can do it. Righteousness. Thanks, bro. Righteousness. Righteousness. The one who lives by the fear of God will live righteously. Well, they will have a integrity because they greatly delight in God's commandments. They know God's commandments for the way that they should live. They know the standard by which their lifestyle should operate under God's morality. And they, whoever they're with or wherever they are, they walk by it. See, the truth about righteousness is that we can only gain it, understand it, by learning it from the scriptures. That's the truth. The reality of righteous living is that there is no one righteous. No, not one. See, God's standard for righteousness is flawless, unblemished righteousness. But we all fall way short of that. None of us have unblemished white morality. We all have a stained morality. But the good news is that Jesus Christ himself, before he died on that cross, lived 30 some odd years flawlessly righteous. So though you fall short and that's bad news because by our sin we all deserve God's wrath. The good news is that Christ suffered God's wrath in your place when he died on the cross and he by faith in him, will attribute and clothe you in his perfect righteousness so that you can stand before God, not in the stained, filthy garments of our own sinfulness, but you can stand before God in the unblemished, bleached, white righteousness of Christ. So standing with integrity... Standing with righteous integrity means that I live my life in light of the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Is the gospel a part of your everyday thinking? When you're invited to go out with your friends and watch a certain movie or go out and go to a certain bar or go out and play a certain game or... Are you being influenced by the gospel? Integrity means whoever I'm with, wherever I am, I'm living the same under the righteousness of Christ. Because whoever I'm with and wherever I am, I know that God is with me and God is watching. So I will live by the fear of God. Our Legacy will only ever be as stable as our integrity is. 
See, most people who live by the secular worldview model of like my life is meaningless unless I get success, so I'm afraid that it's going to be worth nothing, so I will strive for the top. Hey, you can get it if you want. I've seen people leave the church and get what they've been after, but what did they lose? If you wanted to, you could be the next Jeff Bezos billionaire. If you wanted to, you could be the next Bill and Melinda Gates philanthropist. If you wanted to, you could be the next Donald Glover artist. If you wanted to, you could be the next Tom Brady or Sidney Crosby. But what will you lose if you don't have integrity? Your, integ your legacy will never go as far as your integrity will not go. The life that lives a lasting legacy lives with righteous integrity rooted in the gospel. Because I'm living by the fear of God. He's watching our character, the Lord. He knows our friends. He knows the way we speak. He knows how we spend our money. And that's actually the third trait of a life lived in the fear of God. That leaves a lasting legacy. The life that leaves a lasting legacy will manage its money generously. Are you doing that? Maybe you're good at managing your money. You're, you're good at making those dollars go up. Are you managing your money generously? Whether you're salaried or minimum waged, white collar or blue collar, the one who walks in the fear of God manages their money generously with the goal of saving for one's own family and being charitable for others. Let's look at how we see this in the text. Verse 3, it says, Wealth and riches are in his house. Wealth and riches are in his house? Hold up. You're telling me I live by the fear of God and I'm going to get a wealth that I didn't have before? Are you telling me that if I live by the fear of God, I'm getting a salary bump? My one-car garage could becoming a two-car garage. My basement apartment might become a condo. My two-car garage might have a Lambo in it. No, no, that's not what I'm telling you. Manages the money because they know where the income is essentially sourced from. It's not from ourselves. It's not from our own work. Everything we have is from God. So you remember Psalm 112 is a sequel to Psalm 111. And look what Psalm 111 verse 5 says. It says, he, the Lord, provides food for those who fear him. So everything I have, salaried, minimum wage, blue collar, white collar, I manage my money wisely in a way, as the Proverbs teaches, can steadily increase growth because I'm saving it wisely because I know who gave it to me, the Lord. But not only am I managing it to save, I'm also managing it to be able to be generous. And there are two ways this passage tells us that we can be generous. Look at verse 5. It says, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. See, the scripture tells us that to, for someone who is in need, some of the ways that we can act generously is lending money, expecting it to be paid back, but without interest. Scripture tells us if you're going to lend to a brother, don't charge them interest. And, and that might be better in some instances than just giving a handout. Because maybe if you have a family member or you have a friend who you feel responsible to, but their foolish living has got them in the place where they don't have the money that they need, maybe the better thing to do isn't just give them a handout. It's to teach them themselves to live by the fear of God by giving them a loan to pay it back. But not only should we be able to give expecting it 
back, we should give without expecting it back. Look at verse 9. It says, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. You give to the poor, you can't expect that you're going to get that back. And didn't Jesus say, it is better to give than to receive. And that this is the way that we show love. The life that leaves a lasting legacy manages its money generously. But you might think, I, 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 don't, I don't think, I, I don't think I can manage my money like that. Give the first fruits of every paycheck to the church? I can barely save. Give money to a building project or to a church plant? I'm really struggling just to pay my mortgage. I want to tell you a story of three churches. Uh, there was one church who was uh, in a land where there was a famine. And there were two other churches who, kind of like a, a leader of all of the three churches, said, we need to help this church struggling in the famine. So we asked the other two churches, I'm coming in a year's time, collect an offering so that I can give it to them. The two churches that he asked to collect an offering, one was an affluent church, one was a impoverished church. Which church do you think gave generously? This story is actually in the New Testament. The famine, church in the famine was the church in Jerusalem. The affluent church was the Corinthian church. The impoverished church was the Macedonian church. And the Apostle Paul was the leader who said, I'm coming in a year. Give your pledge now and get it ready for when I come. The church in Corinth that had money dragged its feet. The church that didn't have money in Macedonia, listen to what Paul said about them. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed with a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. That equation does not make sense. Don't you think, right? I don't know if there's any financial advisors in the room, but you would hear from your clients, um, I'm in severe affliction right now, and I'm extremely impoverished. Should I be able to give an abundance of wealth? No, that's not an equation that makes sense. But they did. Why? Because Paul said they had an abundance of joy. And because he said God loves a cheerful giver. Whether you're salaried or minimum wage, blue collar, white collar, you can manage your money like this. God provides. Look at the text again with me. Verse 5. It says, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends. See, some of us think because we look at our bank account and we don't see necessarily the red and the black the way that we want, that the right perspective is to go like this with our money. But my father taught me when I was young, if you have your hand like this on your money, how able are you to receive from the Lord? But if you open your hand like this to the Lord, you will not only give to the Lord, but you can receive from the Lord. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends. The Lord provides for those who fear him. I could tell you story after story of miraculous people like the famous George Mueller who fed thousands upon thousands of orphans in England hundreds of years ago because he prayed. Not because he had a good funding campaign, not because he knew the right benefactors, but because he prayed 
And George Mueller was a man that feared God and orphans were kept from dying. Surely, if the Father can clothe the lilies of the field and feed the birds of the air, how much more can he do for you? The life that leaves a lasting legacy manages its money generously. But maybe this isn't a priority in your life. I think finances and sexuality are the two things in the North American church that most reveal whether or not we are living by the fear of God. Maybe you don't want to be generous. Maybe you want to go to every blockbuster movie that comes out. Maybe you want to have every new flagship smartphone every year when it comes out. Maybe you want your kids to have top end Gucci clothes every September when they go back to school. Maybe you need to save every year or you think you need to save every year to go on a beach vacation each March break. Listen, none of those things are necessarily wrong. But you can have all of those things and miss out on living a life that leaves a lasting legacy. And you'll just be hoarding dust that will blow away with the wind. What do you want? Do you want the blessing from God or do you want the blessing that comes from the world? Jesus said, in this world we will have trouble. There are a lot of troubles even when we try to live a life of lasting legacy. But the good news for the one who fears God is that in the troubles of the world we are still attached to a harness that holds us secure whether it's financial trials or whether it's any type of trials. Because here's the fourth trait of a life that leaves a lasting legacy. The life that leaves a lasting legacy perseveres through trials resiliently. Maybe you're going through a dark time right now. I don't know, maybe you have a health problem that you didn't expect or your kids took a turn and have been making decisions behind your back that just are making you anxious or maybe you're afraid about going to school at a new school this fall, or maybe you have a relationship that's strained. Maybe someone is just tearing your reputation up and down at work or at school or in your family. Look at verse 4 with me in 112. Psalm 112 verse 4 says this. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. The life that leaves a lasting legacy perseveres through trials resiliently. If light dawns in the darkness, darkness tells me that even the good life lived in the fear of God needs to be looked at with a sense of reality that the darkness is going to come. Christians should expect to suffer. But if light dawns in the darkness, that tells me that even though dark times come, hope is real when you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Do you feel like you're living with a sense of hope through your trial right now, brother? Do you feel like you know that the sun will dawn, sister? Or do you feel like this night is never going to end? Look at the text again with me in verse 6 to 8. It says this, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph over his adversaries. 
This says that we won't be afraid. Twice. Verse 7, he is not afraid. Verse 8, he will not be afraid. Here's the good news, Christian. The fear of God expels all other fears of trials in this world. So that even when bad news comes that you weren't expecting, your heart can be firm and steady. But notice also, it says that there will be triumph, but we will need to wait. That's what the word until implies. Until he looks in triumph over his adversaries might mean that for a time the adversary looks like they're winning. I think one of the hardest disciplines of the Christian life is the one that the psalmist talks about so frequently. Waiting on the Lord. The experience of hope can only, in trials, can only come through the discipline of waiting on God. Psalm 130 verse 5 to 6 says this, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The watchman was a military position back in ancient Israel. And at a fortified city, the watchman was positioned at the top of the wall. And whether it was peacetime, whether it was wartime, their job was just to look. 24-7. And there were segments of time where they needed to stand in their post and watch. So even if it was peacetime, and even if it was four in the morning, and even if you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, the job was to watch. There's nothing the watchman can do to hasten the rising of the sun any quicker except wait. But he would remember from the night before, the sun still rose. And from the night before, the sun still rose. Christian, we will persevere resiliently through trials when we wait. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. And light will dawn. And whether that's the result that you want, we do know that God works all things for good. And whether that's the result you want or whether that's the Lord taking you into glory, God is using this trial for your good and you can wait on him. The life that leaves a lasting legacy perseveres through trials resiliently. You can because the fear of God expels all other fears. Here's the last trait of the life that leaves a lasting legacy when it's lived by the fear of God. The life that leaves a lasting legacy enables others to flourish. See, the amazing thing about living your life this way is that it's not just good for you, it translates into good for others. And the others that are considered specifically here in this passage are your kids. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Each of us can have an influence on others, whether you're a youth, whether you're still living with your parents at home but in university, whether you've moved out and you're just recently engaged, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, each of us can have an influence when we live by the fear of God. But specifically in view here is parents, mom and dad. And specifically in view here, if you look at the male gendered pronouns of this verse, specifically in view here is dad. Like I told you, I spent seven years in youth, youth ministry, and I recognized really quickly into my time what the f- biggest factors were that enables kids to flourish and enables some kids to flounder in relation to their faith. 
The kids that flourished were not the ones that had the best clothes, the most extracurricular opportunities, the best gadgets, the newest fads, the coolest vacations. It didn't even matter what type of school they went to, frankly. There were kids that flourished and floundered alike in public school, private school, Catholic school, homeschool. The number one factor that I saw that caused kids to flourish or flounder was, do mom and dad fear the Lord and live it out in front of their kids? And most specifically, did dad take up his God-given responsibility to be the head of his household and disciple his kids? Far from being mighty in the land, a lot of our kids are weakened when their parents do not live by the fear of God, especially dad. The best way that I can show the benefit of having dad around, a dad that fears God, is showing you what happens when dad isn't around. These are a bunch of statistics gathered from uh, U.S. government agencies. I'm pretty sure they correlate similarly here in Canada as well. In the U.S., kids from fatherless homes represent 63% of all youth suicides. Kids from fatherless homes represent 71% of all teen pregnancies. Kids from fatherless homes represent 70% of all youth in detention centers. 71% of all high school dropouts. Kids from fatherless homes represent 85% of all youth in school systems who exhibit behavioral disorders. And the sorrowful news is that in 2010, a U.S. Census, census reported that there were currently, at that time, 24.7 million kids living without biological dad at home. One PhD sociologist said this, the quote is on the screen. When it comes to social well-being of children, these concerns correlate more strongly with fatherlessness than any other factor, surpassing race, social class, and poverty. Father absence may well be the most critical social issue of our time, and the need for a father is on an epidemic scale, and father deficit should be treated as a public health issue. Want to hear the good news? There was a study in Canada that showed the positive stats of what happens when kids, parents are involved in kids' lives. In Canada, three-quarters of all young adults who are engaged in the church have parents who themselves had a high practice of spiritual disciplines. Remember Psalm 112.1? greatly delights in your word not moderately delights not low delights greatly delights here's another stat young adults who knew their parents regularly practiced spiritual disciplines were themselves two to three times more likely to do the same and five times more likely to attend church regularly compared to those young adults with parents who did not practice bible reading and did not go to church Now, I know there's likely some families in the room who are blended and biological dad isn't at home or maybe even single moms. And I'd like to give you some hope. Can we look at that picture again that we saw earlier? What positive male influence is in this picture? There's none. Does that mitigate the influence that this elderly woman had on this boy? Not at all. If you come from, are in a blended family or a single mom, you have the same grace that Lois and Eunice had on their son and grandson, Timothy. Do you remember Timothy? The guy whom two letters were written to the New Testament? No dad around. But Paul said about Timothy in 1 Timothy, 
I remember your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that first dwelt in your mother, Lois, and your grandmother, Eunice. Mom, you have the same grace that Lois and Eunice had for their boy, Timothy. And the Lord does much wonders through the power of praying moms. But dad, there'll be another game. There'll be another concert. There'll be another meeting. There'll be another email. These are your only kids. And they bear your last name. And more than anything else, when you are gone, they will be what's left that maintain your legacy. The life that leaves a lasting legacy enables others to worship. The life that leaves a lasting legacy perseveres through trials. It manages money generously. It stands with integrity. It inspires others to worship. Are you living your life in the fear of God? It's the only way that you can leave a legacy that lasts. But what if you're not? What if you think about all these things and you're just like, I, 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 my kids are out of control. I'm not giving the time I need. My money is out of control. I'm going through hard trials. I'm not influencing other people. What Listen, if you're not living by the fear of God, if these things aren't in your life, the wrong response to this message would be, I got to focus on this thing. I got to go focus on this problem. And I got to go orbit my life around that thing and focus on that. The earth is held in orbits because it is pulled by the mass of the gravitational pull of the sun. And in the same way, what will keep all your life in order, what will enable you to influence others towards worship, to manage your money, to persevere through trials, to be able to influence your kids, isn't focusing on the thing. It's focusing your attention back on the Lord. The sun is able to keep multiple uh, planets in orbit around it and then multiple orbits uh, moons are kept around in orbit around those planets turn your attention back to the glory of God and your life will be held together securely around him and you will be nourished and sustained by him and there in the fear of God you can begin to live a life that leaves a lasting legacy whether you're a teenager or in your 20s, or hitting a midlife crisis, or at the twilight of your age, you can live your life in a way that leaves a lasting legacy, but it must be lived in the fear of God. Would you pray together with me now? Father, thank you for your mercy towards weak sinners like us. We're mindful of him, the son of man, that you would care for him. Thank you, Father, that you would call us your children. Thank you, Father, that by the blood of Jesus Christ, you would unite us into a relationship with you, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to your word to show us the way that we can live. And Father, on the, on the edge of a new school year ahead of us, or Lord, would we be able to look forward now, looking up at, towards you at all times? seeing your holiness, seeing your righteousness, seeing your grace, and in awe of you orbiting our lives around you. And would all this be done for your glory, Father? In Jesus' name, amen.